Well, hello there, and welcome to the Urban Gardener podcast, uh, where we help you turn up your gardening skills with timely tips and tricks for the urban landscape. I'm Josh Campbell, urban agriculture natural resources educator, and I'm here with my buddy. I'm Julia Laughlin. I'm the o- Oklahoma County horticulture educator, and we're smack dab in the beautiful city of Oklahoma City, in, right here in, in the Oklahoma middle city. of our beautiful state of Oklahoma. Yep. And uh, it is glad it, we are glad to be back with you. We are right in the thick of fall, Julia. Yeah. So we've got some cooler weather that's hit yeah, us. And it was 35 to 40 degrees this morning, and we're having a late fall, right? It seems, you know, it's getting close to late October, and the trees are barely starting to turn, even because of the drought and the warm temperatures, yeah. but it's coming. It is. Sure. We are, I'm starting to see the color change and the yellowing, yeah. and so yeah. we're starting to have, have a, a little bit of that beautiful fall color. And speaking of fall color and changes in the trees, one of the things that comes to mind for me when we're in the middle of fall as something to to think about an activity that that we can be doing is composting. Right. We have so much material that comes out of our landscapes and much of that ends up going to the landfill. But if we right. can compost that, it's a great resource for our our landscapes. And so lasagna composting is is a method that kind of wanted to touch on today. There are so many options when it comes to composting. There are. And you can just be a, build your standard pile, which we have a great fact sheet on. It's just, it's it's not, there's there's not a mystery. It's, I think it seemed like there used to be a mystery, but there's so much information on there, how to get your green and your brown the right proportions to right. where they'll biodegrade. Right. It's easy. It's just rot, right? Right. It's yeah. natural processes that we're harnessing. And so, uh, like we said, there are a number of different methods. One of, one of the ones that I think is nice and easy, especially if you have a little bit of landscape space, is the lasagna method. Um, and it's called the lasagna method. Julia, you, you're an Italian. You like yeah, to cook. Yeah, uh, you put that bechamel it, sauce yeah, in there. It's so good. <laughs> so good. But you're just layering materials in, yeah. in place. And so that's why it's called the lasagna method. I've used this method around some of my um, areas around the, the like raised beds or even areas that I have a future uh, intent of yep. growing in ground, but yep. I'm not growing there yet. Yeah. I can layer materials and build soil kind of in place right on yep. top of the ground. Yep. And I, I'm going to be honest with you here, Josh, if I'm having company, this is all covered over with mulch, but I take my kitchen scraps and lay them on. I have a kitchen garden right outside the back door, which is mainly herbs, you know, things I can go snip and cook mm-hmm. with. And I, I layer my kitchen scraps. And then once I get, I know if someone came over there, like, oh, you your kitchen waste out on the garden but once it gets cut a layer gets covered i just put a layer of straw on top of it so it's a weird way to do lasagna but it's you wouldn't want to do this if your neighbors could see it but mine can't so yeah well and and that's exactly the the method i mean you're you're layering materials um in place you you do need to have a good cap of carbon you mentioned the straw Uh you're going to put fresh food waste or food scraps down you will need some some good carbon source uh wood chips or straw to cover that up to to deter um, pests and keep keep any odors at bay. But that's exactly how you do it. You layer materials in place. Uh, it's a slower method of composting than some of that, the active methods where you're turning and yep. watering regularly. But over the course of about a year, you can make some really good soil. And so if it is a good method for somebody that maybe has the intention of of converting an existing site yeah. into a, a, an in-ground garden, a new bed or whatever. It's a good way to get that start, that process started. Uh, so definitely encourage you to look up lasagna composting if that's um, something that... Well, they're evidently doing some of this in the Oklahoma City Public Schools. They're doing community gardens where they're actually doing a layer of compost on top of cardboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know much about it. One, one thing to point out is we, we want to create this compost, but uh, really, Josh, um, topsoil is full of minerals, too. Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Compost is organic matter decaying, but 
Um, our, our soils are full of minerals that uh, you might even consider in a, wouldn't you think in a real lasagna garden doing a layer of topsoil in there for microorganisms? Yeah, and you definitely, you're and, trying to marry, you're trying to get organic matter in right. the soil to marry, right? Yeah. And so we're, oftentimes we have soils that are low in organic matter. As we, as we do composting, lasagna composting in this example, we're building uh, some of that organic matter on, on top of, of existing soil. And then, you know, macroorganisms, worms right. and, and, and mm-hmm. other bugs and things, they are working like that Miriam, organic matter like into said, the soil. Yeah. And so it makes for the perfect conditions because you're right. We, we don't want to plant in pure organic matter. Plants just can't, um, can't take that. They need the mineral Minerals content that yeah. is in base parent yeah. material. Yeah. But uh, when we have the right balance of a healthy soil that's productive for plants, it's a little bit of mineral material, about 50% mineral material, yeah. and, a, and, and then a good amount of organic matter as yep. well. Yep. Yeah. And you could even throw compost on top of that too. Yeah. 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 I've seen that done. You know, the, the mistake some people will make with these types of methods like lasagna composting is they may get like a, a chip drop or, or a landscape drop and lay, and lay, you know, 10 or 12 inches of wood chips and then try to immediately go down and plant into that. And it's you just, just are not going to have, yeah. you're not going to have success. Yeah. Um, you have to have that that decomposition that happens you have to have those plants ability to to make contact with the soil and so over time as that settles as that as that starts to break down you can plant right into that but it's going to take a year or so before you you can do that something else that i wonder about is when i see people doing lasagna gardens they a lot of times they'll just try to put them straight into a bermuda grass lawn so you put down a layer of cardboard and then you start building your lasagna layers on top of it Eventually, it is going to break down, but the Bermuda lawn is just going to creep in. And and that's something we deal with in the Midwest where mm-hmm. Bermuda lawns or Bermuda grasses, man, it makes a good uh, lawn because it is so aggressive, but it will try to get into your into your lasagna yeah. garden too. Yeah, yeah, it will. It will for sure. That will be a constant battle. And so when we think about lasagna composting, uh, we mentioned some of the materials, Julia, that that would be good. But what are what are some materials that would be good for lasagna composting? You mentioned um, garden scraps, garden yeah. scraps. But yeah. what about like cardboard material and yeah, things like yeah. that? How would you um, use that? Well, uh, traditional lasagna. I've seen it done both ways. Where I've seen it actually done in farming, where um, in small farming or mm-hmm. ag- small ag, where they on a small field they would go in and drop a layer of brown like straw Mm -hmm. or spent hay and then they would come on top of that with a load of manure Mm -hmm. composted maybe even not that far composted because they could be waiting the period from the time that it's fairly fresh to the time that it would be composted enough that you could turn it into the soil Mm -hmm. so imagine a layer of spent hay or straw would be better because of the seeds and then a layer of chicken manure Mm -hmm. and then another layer of something organic like um uh, another layer of straw layer of leaves whatever you can find to to that's big enough to do that large garden mm-hmm. or field mm-hmm. and then they leave it there for eight or nine months mm-hmm. and then when you turn it under it's just like chocolate cake mix i mean it's i've all... even seen i've seen some videos of people online and I, i've never tried this but of people doing potatoes in kind of that manner oh, where they, yeah. they basically yeah. build build a compost straw mix and they yeah. just plant their potatoes right in yeah. that and yeah. so in- interesting things it you is. can do for sure Yes. Um, but in the vegetable garden, really, I think that was kind of an example of a big one. But, but I'm kind of doing the same thing on my herbs because I'm putting that uh, fresh stuff around them and then mulching on top. But um, more for a backyard gardener, don't you think that they're br- probably going to start with the cardboard layer yeah. and then start building up with green and brown layers on top of that? I, th- I really think of lasagna as like a method that is conducive or maybe maybe even, you know, in the same realm of thought as uh, the principles behind no-till. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, no-till gardening, the idea is you're, you're trying to reduce tillage or, or eliminate tillage altogether so you don't disturb the soil aggregation. You right. have microorganisms. You don't disturb yeah. the microorganisms. The more you introduce yeah. oxygen, yeah. the less organic matter organic you have because it, it yeah. speeds up that, that yeah. oxidization. And so those are some of the principles behind lasagna gardening. And you can harness that and do yeah. do that stuff that's done large scale, you know, on, on crop Smaller land. Yeah. yeah, we do. A lot yeah. of wheat in Oklahoma is no-till wheat. Um, a lot of crop ground is no-till. And you can take those same practices and principles down to the small garden scale. That's a really good point, John. People are curious, I think, about the note. Why they're like, but why not till? Uh, back in when I first started gardening on my own, when I was in my twenties, uh, we it was a real big deal to have these little tillers that we we ran up and down the roads. Me, mm-hmm. <laughs> the mantis tiller was the one that everybody bought. Everybody they weren't very expensive, but you'd use that to cultivate weeds. But you were tilling, you know. The people were like, well, why can't I till? And you don't have to go no till, but always think of think about minimal low till as little. Maybe you only till in the spring. Maybe mm-hmm. you don't till in the fall. Mm-hmm. But you need to till in the spring. Maybe to till your cover crop in or something but it is all about destruction of that of that biodynamic going mm-hmm. on in the soil mm-hmm. yeah i totally agree i'm 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 not a hardcore no tiller for sure but i'm a i would say definitely i focus on I low think about minimal tillage yeah. till str- it's strategic right you're strategic. doing it for a yeah. purpose it's a better word and so we don't need to be out there tilling all the time although kind of some of those older gardening my grandpa for instance was the kind of gardener he wanted clean lines everywhere yep. so he used his little Meticulous. tiller and everything yeah. was always yeah. clean and the so- soil was powdery like dusty sand. at the top yeah. <laughs> um, and so he was constantly having to add organic material to, to be able to grow into that. And so, you know, it's, it, it's, it's one of those things it, by using no-till practices over time, it actually can reduce the amount of labor, ongoing yeah. labor. Um, as we till, till and stuff, we're actually encouraging more wheat growth and as we yeah. have the seed population yeah. there as well. So there's some, some things that it can do to be advantageous in terms of weed growth, but it's also building an undisturbed, really healthy soil. Well, is this a good time to introduce our assistant, Kate, and see if she if she feels like we've skipped something on garden? Yeah, on let's, Kate, so you had some questions for us. Have we missed anything? Introducing Kate Reynolds. Yeah, I think we covered all the questions, but uh, I do have a question about the Bermuda grass you mentioned. Uh-huh. So if you're trying this method over Bermuda grass, should you prep the area mm. better than just uh, throwing down cardboard and starting your layers? That's a really good question. I think you could start it in Bermuda, just being aware. I mean, you could do it. If it was me, I would dig the Bermuda out just so you have that, not that layer just waiting for you. Mm -hmm. Because it's weird. Have you ever like thought you smothered Bermuda and then like two weeks later, it's like, wow, I didn't hurt it at all. (laughs) Like you moved the box or something and it comes right back, but maybe cut it out. But in addition, it's that creeping in from the sides, it's gonna be bad. Um, what would be ideal is to not do a lasagna garden where you're in a Bermuda grass lawn. If you're in an area where there's some Bermuda grass, be ready to fight it. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I think, Kate, whether you realize it or not, your, your question's a little, little bit of a philosophical one because um, there are a bunch of different answers. So if you are in a Bermuda grass lawn site, certainly the most straightforward, quick, and effective way to do it would be to to chemically eradicate that site, right? And to kill out that Bermuda grass. But for many of us as um, as home gardeners, many people want to reduce the use of, of chemicals. And so there are a, a bunch of methods. Solarization is one, uh, just putting down cardboard yeah. and things like that is, an, is another method. But each of those methods is going to come with its own 
timetable and effectiveness, you know, right. in terms of how long it's going to take yeah. to actually get control. Yeah. I'd say the best answer I have to that question is to go to our um, Oklahoma gardening videos on the subject. We have a couple Oklahoma gardening videos that cover all mm-hmm. different types of eradication. They did a of really good grass. job on that. Yeah, and I think there's a fact sheet in the works. Yeah, so I'm not sure when that will come out. they did some really good applied research there. Mm-hmm. It was helpful. So. so Kate will have that in the show notes for people to, to watch the, uh, the Oklahoma gardening video on that subject. Um, so moving on to our second topic, you think, Kate, ready? Okay, migrating houseplants indoors. Okay, so the the main thing here is why do we even move houseplants out, outdoors? And it's because of the light. That's the whole reason. Those of us that are, um, uh, Kate's real into indoor plants too. Those of us that are, in, you know, like our indoor plants, we want our uh, goal, I think, is to put these outside in the summertime and take up as much of that photosynthate we, mm-hmm. the plants can build up so they will grow and be beautiful and flourish. I have almost everything. I don't take s- certain blooming plants outside like my orchids and my violets. I'll leave those inside all, all summer, but everything else goes outside for the summer. Um, some of the things I move into decorative pots and then I have to pot those back up and bring them in. But okay, so we've got to bring them back in now that we've given them all that great sunshine because they're tropical. Mm-hmm. So if they weren't tropical, we could leave them outside, but they're not going to tolerate the freeze. Um, in Oklahoma, we anticipate a freeze anytime in the next two weeks. Um, so right now... Yeah, I was going to say, we probably got some work to do around here to get some plants inside. Uh, I so. know. I've got something <laughs> scheduled to get our plants inside here. <laughs> I just worked on that. But yeah, we need to get stuff in. The One of the main things is that if you... Um, haven't already done so get them close to your back door in some shade what happens is when they're outside in the summer and they get all that flush of growth on them they develop all these cells in their leaves that are adapted to being taking up that more direct sunlight so when you move them into a more shady area they've been begin to sense that the days are getting shorter um, the sunlight's going down it's becoming a different season and they change their literal function in their leaves Um, and cell development to be ready for that lower light. So that helps a lot. Plus the fact that when they're by the door, you can, I shouldn't say this, but you can grab them at the last minute because I've done it a hundred (laughs) times. Well, I haven't lived that many years, but it seems like I've done it a hundred times because I'll be like, oh my gosh, it's here already. Mm -hmm. And I got to grab those plants and bring them in tonight or they're going to die. Cold weather has a way of sneaking up on gardeners. Yes. and, And honestly, Josh, they really say 45 to 50 degrees. So things should not have been outside last night, but um, they will tolerate it, but it's hard on them. So I have a question. I'm as somebody who's, I do have some indoor plants, but I'm, I would not classify myself as like a house plant guru or lover. Um, Well, it's hard when you got two little kids. Yeah. And just, I like the gardening outdoors and soil more, but I do like, I do like plants and I appreciate indoor plants, but somebody who doesn't have lots and lots of them, when you think about moving say a large potted plant or something from outdoors on a patio or outside somewhere inside, obviously the conditions are different, right? So you're going from, right. from fluctuating temperatures where temperatures might swing 20, 30 degrees in a given day to a more static temperature in a household, unless you're somebody who likes to fluctuate the thermostat in your yeah, house. Yeah, but it's still by, probably not going to um, fluctuate much, right? right? And so does that does that constitute some stress on the plant, well, that change? It's, in, it actually, they adapt pretty good to that to the it's harder on probably with the swings mm-hmm. but it's the it's weird because we say plants don't really think but their uh, hormones within them um, that direct their growth and in this case they they appreciate the lack of um, change in temperature uh, but it's just adjusting to that gotcha. so it does sometimes cause them more than likely if they drop leaves though it's from a lower light 
they're they're like all of a sudden they're in high light. Then once we do get them in, they hate drafts. You know, like they're they don't like when you yeah. open the door and it's uh, 13 degrees outside, which happens right. in Oklahoma. They've gone to their beach vacation home for the uh-huh. for the winter, and they don't. And then they you put them want, by the yeah. door, and it turns into December, and it's uh, we have you know we have we get them, and then the same thing with the heat from the vents because yeah. when it's blowing right on them, that temperature can be extreme. So we have to watch out for those two things. Cool. And then I think um, a big thing here is pests. So here's the deal: if you don't already know that you have pests, that's a good thing. Maybe you don't. But if you're going to be bringing them in in the next week or two, um, you really need to look them over good. I, the reason I say that is because over the years, there's been times like like where I accidentally brought white flies home from a nursery, and I knew I had white flies in July. You know, or I got a little bit of spider mite started on something. I knew I had them. I had webbing. But right now is the time where if you haven't seen anything, just like give them a top-to-toe, you know, um, look over, flip the leaves over, see if you've got any signs, any spots, anything. Mm-hmm. If you're not used to looking at ins- for insects, what you're looking for is a creature itself, like an aphid, um, and they're visible. You can see little tiny bugs or insects, but sometimes they're hard to see, like spider mites. Um, I said yeah. mealybugs is the one that everyone can see because it's white and cottony, and ooh, it's awful. But it's real common on houseplants. Mm-hmm. Aphids are real easy to see. Spider mites are almost invisible. Um, actually they're there. You can see them with the, you know, with good eyesight, but you really have to look, they look so like would little you dots. Recommend, like for instance, with like the white flies or, or other, other similar, uh, things that if you're going to be bringing houseplants in and you suspect that maybe they've, they've okay. taken host to uh, a pest over yeah. the growing season that you yeah. use some traps or something immediately upon bringing them into the house. Well, and, and let me finish on spider mites. I meant to say this is what we do see is the webbing because they make webbing. So it'll be like a spider web on there. So if you're, if you're not sure, look on the internet, look at our fact sheets, see if you have a pest. And then um, if you do have a pest, you have a couple of options. One option is to spray the plants with an insecticide, which you can buy. Um, talk to your nurseryman or look at the box store you shop at for a houseplant insecticide or insect spray. Um, And it'll tell you on the label what it works on, like aphids or spider mites or whatever. The other choice you have is to put a granular systemic insecticide on there. These are okay for a couple reasons. One is houseplants, they don't make pollinating flowers, so we're not about the pollinators, but they are an insecticide. Uh, I've never heard of this, but what if your dog drinks out of the bottom of the, <laughs> you know, I've never heard of anyone losing a dog like that, but in theory, it's a pesticide inside your house, but it's labeled, so they know that it's technically it's safe. So what about something a little bit safer? And for me, that would be a USDA recommended spray of three tablespoons of dish soap and three tablespoons of olive oil or another vegetable oil, but olive oil is best, um, in a gallon of water. And that will kill mites, aphids, and it will help stop mealybugs. Although it doesn't honestly kill mealybugs. If you've got a real bad mealybug white Mm -hmm. stuff all over your plants, really, you might need to think about saying goodbye to that plant i hate to be that way but it will get on everything you own they will they're they're yeah they're creepy crawly little uh messy ugly bugs they really like succulents i'm pointing at kate because she's a succulent grower they love jade plants or 
any of the crassulas or anyway. So let's try to get rid of the bugs. Now I do, I am going to give this tip. It's also a, it works and it's, it's a, a recommendation that we can accept from OSU, but that is to put alcohol directly onto those mealybugs with a Q-tip and it does kill them. But the problem is they hide just in like these, a rubbing alcohol, the kind you buy at, this, at Walmart or whatever. 80%. Yeah. And you just take a Q-tip and run it and it does kill them. The problem that I found and Kate's probably had this experience too, is they are hiding everywhere. So you think you've got every single millibug in the world off with your plants and then there they are again. It's like the same, it's like the same concept of like, oh, I'm just going to go out and squish all the squash bugs. Well, that, and, that, yeah. that's effective, but you're not going to squish them all. Right, 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 right. exactly. Especially mealybugs, which are way smaller. Oh, and, and they have a way of hiding in the tissue that I don't even understand. They're inside of the crevices and the cracks and stuff inside the plant. But what did we forget there, Kate? I know we talk about people bringing their house plants back in the house, but I've heard of people like taking them to the garage for the winter. Does that work I, or do you have concerns I, about I that? I think that's a really good question that I think I would not do that with any of my house plants. I think they're tropical and you need light. Um, but people do it a lot with perennials that things that like they'll pull up their uh, bananas because we do have hardy bananas in Oklahoma, but majority of the bananas you see in people's gardens, I shouldn't say majority, I have no idea, but you'll see see both you'll see the ones that are tropical and the ones that will overwinter here with the right situation which is just mainly a good mulch and not too hard of a winter but um those ones that don't overwinter people just yank them up throw them in the corner of their garage and they go totally dormant you can do that with geraniums you can pull them up throw them in there they also do it with asparagus ferns mm -hmm. so the asparagus fern in, in the um, garage is more than likely going to drop most of its needles, which are messy. But then you cut it back in the spring, start watering, and it comes out of dormancy. I've done it many times. But um, other houseplants, so I would try to give them the sunniest spot in the house that you can find for them. And do you expect them to grow much over the winter? Or should no. people kind of expect them to... Stay still. No, that's another really great question. Don't expect much in the winter. Here's something I told somebody the other day, and it was a, it was an experienced house plant grower. Um, but she, she, I told her this. I said I learned this from my mom, but it's true. Is while they're in that dormant state, you really shouldn't even fertilize them. I know every plant fertilizer that you get says fertilize every two weeks or whatever. It tells you to fertilize all year. Uh, not not every one of them, but some of them, if they're just getting sitting there in dormancy, the fertilizers are sitting in the soil. They're really not using it. And you've probably got plenty of fertilizer residue left in there from fertilizing before. But start in March and fertilize March, April, May, June, July, even um, maybe in August because their plant growth really doesn't stop until about September, October. And then they go into that. It's a, it's a dormant growth period, not a real dormancy because they're still functioning. But they go into a, a no, no growth zone. So, um, so don't expect much. Sometimes you'll get one in really high light and it'll send out like it's been running really good all summer. It'll send a, a whole new sprout or something and it's exciting. What else you got for us, Kate? That sums it up. It's a lot of stuff to do. Get your lasagna yeah. garden going. Get your houseplants in. Yeah, there's, there's so much. And we just scraped the surface on really what you can be doing in fall. And so I guess that'll mean people need to stay tuned and listen to our next episode. Yeah, November November 1 checklist. Yeah. Yep. We'll be we'll be back soon with uh, some tips for November. Until then, thank you for joining us on the Urban Gardener podcast. We appreciate you listening. Please do subscribe if you haven't already. And um, that helps us reach more people. We'll see you next time.